Hello and welcome to the Demographicast. This week I'm joined by Jack Street as always and by Candice Riley this week. How are you both? Good, thanks mate. Good. Good, good. Um, I, uh, Candice, did you want to pretend, we had you on a, a few weeks, well actually it was like over a month ago now was, uh, for an interview um, because you're a member of the uh, Women's Equality Party and a candidate I believe. Am I right? Correct. Yes. I am a candidate. Where is I'm it you're contesting the Cliftonville um, seat uh, for the Kent County Council elections in May? Right. How's it going? How's your campaign going? It's a very good, very interesting times if you're doing a campaign because um, all the things I'm campaigning for everybody needs to care about. So um, let's just make it political priorities. Cool. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Um, this week we're going to start by with by talking about um, the sort of disenfranchisement that uh, it seems like a lot of people feel towards uh, the two main parties. Um, specifically, I wanted to also bring up the fact that there seems to be quite a bit of a re- not resurgence, maybe, but there are a lot of new parties being formed recently, smaller parties um, that seem to be gaining quite a bit of traction. Um, I'm thinking of parties like. Whether over five years ago, if we're thinking about UKIP during the uh, referendum, or uh, since then, the Brexit Party, the Women's Equality Party, the North Independence Party, all of them seem to be uh, gaining more traction. Um, And obviously, it seems to be attracting a lot of attention, especially from young people, because I think we've kind of figured that a lot of young people, like I've said before, do feel quite disenfranchised um, and don't feel like the two main parties necessarily represent their views um why let's start with first of all why you guys both think people feel so disenfranchised at the moment candice do you want to try and start with that um for me the women's equality party wasn't somewhere i've said this before but um i automatically gravitated to uh, i'm just going to say this openly i come from a family of unionists so i was literally naturally leaning towards labor but um the more i got into politics it wasn't verbatim that you had to just join labor because one i'm a black woman um and because they um for the most part um action our rights as part of their political um uh work the most um what i did do and i always say this to young people is just to look at the other parties because for example the liberal democrats has been growing in their um, intersectionality so has the green party um i'm indifferent about some other parties like brexit party or ukip because i live in an area where i feel that they mislead and deliberately use um certain phobias transphobia uh, xenophobia, anti-semitism to encourage voting for them and um i think that's misleading you know i don't think it's fair to um, encourage people to vote for you through their fears um, I think it should be through what you can do for them as an organisation to just towards um, progressive things like um, proportional representation so we do have a variety of views in our different levels of government but not because it's spawned out of hate or fear so that's, that's why I'm for different parties just mm. it's how they're created that i have a problem with sure jack do you want to try and tackle that question of yeah yeah sure and i think it's the the answer's 
it, sort of within the question itself in the the two party system creates a, a political a, a creates a political system in which it's very difficult to engage in because you have the choice of voting predominantly for two or three parties they're the only parties because of the voting system we have that are likely to win a seat and therefore you're pushed to being involved in two or the into in joining two or three parties but because those parties understand that they don't necessarily need to work for your vote or to include you in the political system oftentimes particularly young people are forgotten about or or people who live in traditionally safe seats take the labor party for example um the parties don't work hard enough to try and gain the trust or continue the trust of those people and therefore people become apathetic to the system um, and i think that that's what we've seen now and i think that's indicative in the rise of particularly UKIP um, whether you agree with what they say or not or said or not and I certainly don't but they were they had they found the ability to tap into working class communities particularly and argue that they were providing a voice for those communities those people that felt disenfranchised and um, a lot of people from those communities entrusted them with their vote they were the third largest party at one point in time um, we had a we have a political system that didn't reflect that within parliament um which in my opinion is 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 unacceptable you know they had the third largest amount of votes but only won one seat whether you're not you agree with ukip you can't argue that that's in any way right or democratic um i can i just point in the 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 fear i get with an organization like this that were saved to some extent from ruling us in a, a much larger extent because of the system not allowing for them to have more um, control was that for people like myself we saw them get this kind of power of control but it came from a place of as you said encouraging people who felt disenfranchised but the reason they felt disenfranchised I don't think it was just because the two main poli poli political parties weren't doing enough for them I felt like that we had stepped into a terrain that we weren't ready for as political parties. I don't think Labour had decided if it wanted to have a different tone yet because it had done so much work on, you know, um, the mining areas. It done so much work on um, women's rights and thought it was the most progressive on racial rights. Like it thought it didn't need to do more work. It didn't think there was a new wave coming. And what actually happened is there was this group of people being silenced by all of that work because they saw themselves as um, mass of England and they thought that legislation wasn't about them. And so that's why I use language like fear and hate. It was, it was that these parties forgot that language because they were trying to be really progressive and even the Conservative Party had that um, kickback because David Cameron tried to be more progressive with his language and, you know, roll up his sleeves and talk more to the people. But he ended up fragmenting the Conservative Party. And that's what we've seen in the last, uh, in my opinion, uh, eight years. We've seen this growing fragmenting that we could get like the Change UK Party, mm. where a whole lot of different MPs walked away because they felt like their party wasn't doing enough for them so that's what, what why i feel like i started to feel a bit cringy because if you had had a different system knowing what they did to margate where i live don't think 
we would be in a really good place. No, I, I, I'm not. I'm not disputing that. I'm not disputing that. But that you either want to live in a democratic system or you don't. And if a party gets the third largest amount of votes, if you want to live in a democracy, they should have the third largest representation in our centralized political system. Now, I wouldn't want that from a personal point of view. But you, you know, you can't only agree with democracy when it suits your 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 ends. And I'm sure that I'm sure that you'd agree. Um, you know, you you could say you you could say the same thing about the Greens. You could say the same thing about the Liberal Democrats if they were in the same position. Um, we need to have a a political system that's proportional and that reflects the interests of the people. And it's the it's the job of political parties, whether it be the Conservative Party or the Labour Party or the Liberal Democrats, to understand the tone and the mood and the wants of the people and then to properly reflect that. That is the job of political parties. And if they haven't done a good enough job of that. Other parties need to have the ability to be able to make inroads and take seats off of them and reflect the interests of the people, which is why I love the fact that we're seeing the rise of so many new parties and we're having more and more people step in and say, we want to do things differently and having different a, a range of different voices heard. Whether I agree with those parties or not, it doesn't matter. I want to hear the views of as many people as possible and I want as many people as possible to be able to get involved in a political movement where they can have their voice heard. And the next step of that is ensuring that we have a voting system and we have a political system that is democratic and reflects the will of the people through general elections. And that's where I hope that this is moving, this is, this is moving towards. Um, but th this, this, to come back to your original question, Brett, this, the problem with the, the two-party system that we have and the reason that I think so many people feel removed from from politics is down to that to to those two parties becoming complacent and not continuing to stand up and have a strong message to uh, the majority of, of people in this country and that will only change when those those parties wake up and fight for more more democratic systems but they don't want to because it might mean relinquishing some of their power so you know we end up going in this kind of vicious vicious cycle mm -hmm. yeah do we think that the, the um the country is moving away from the two-party system then naturally um i see you shaking your head candace i think when i look at like american politics i don't think we could get that divided where you know america has a green party but you never hear them they never will probably ever get a chance to have that kind of standing just because of how much money and uh, long standing the democrats and the republicans have but we're not in that much of a different system yes we have the liberal democrats greens uh, even us as the women's equality party as household names i'd like to say that for the women's equality party fingers crossed um but um do have a similar standing in that the Labour Party and the Conservative has such a long-standing and huge budget behind them that I just feel like until there's an equitable budget, and I don't think that could ever happen where every party gets their share of budget of advertising, but, you know, when we have things like um, question time or pol political party things we know we don't hear from every party and people would go well how would we because there's so many of them but we don't because we know we we kind of live in that party system and i i don't think it's going to be easy for us to walk away from that because people expect some entrenched way to hear from the two and it's this weird 
um, House of Commons that they enjoy, right? They enjoy seeing whoever is leading Labour shouting at whoever is leading the Conservatives. It's never like, oh, maybe we should hear from the Liberal Democrats now. You know, it's just these two. That's the only ones we want to see fight. So um, that's just my opinion. Yeah, I think outside of Westminster, there's the willingness to move away from that system. But within Westminster, within the political establishment, there isn't because it's about cementing the power of those who are already within that system. And, and that's, again, the problem. You create larger issues because the two parties ignore the will of wanting a more representative system. And therefore, people dislike the two main parties more. People dislike the two main parties more. The two main parties are less likely to change. And, and again, you, you have this, you know, this this problem until one of those parties. And I, I think it should have been. I think the Labour Party should be pushing for this much, much harder, come out in favour of some kind of political or electoral reform, you aren't going to see that change. And I think it would be really powerful, really beneficial for a party like the Labour Party to come out in support of a more proportional um, system and a change to the voting system and have that included as part of their manifesto. Because like I said earlier, it, it, your your views and your values based on democracy shouldn't be there because it makes it easier for you to win. Your, your, views, your views on democracy and being part of a democratic system should be there because you believe in that system, no matter whether you win or lose. And um, that's the main problem for me, is that politics has become, and most would argue, always has been about cementing power and not about reflecting the right, um, reflecting the views of, of, of the people and the citizens of this country, and that's where we've gone wrong. Mm. Yeah. I, I was wondering if, like, because I like the the seeing all these smaller parties coming up. When I I grew up in France, and in France there are dozens of of parties, um, to the point where they don't really have a a system like we do, where um, two parties are constantly vying for uh, for power. Because, for example, Macron's party was a fairly new party um, before he got in um, and became president. And in my view, having so many parties is such a is, is a, a much better system because it allows for uh, debate and and um, a variety of, of places to to hang your hat or to, to or a different viewpoints to to, yep. to to listen to. And there's no point in pretending that everybody on the right supports the Conservatives or everybody on the left supports Labour. It, there really is, and that, and it's probably partly um, why these both of those parties have such huge issues with fa- such huge issues with factionalism, because the people in those parties don't really agree with one another, but they have to, they have to, they feel like if they have to get into politics, then they need to pick one of those two parties, and well, that's it's how we end up in the situation. The situation precisely, and it comes back to what Candice you were saying earlier, in that you know. There are people in the Conservative Party that completely disagree with things that the current Conservative Party stand for, and many people don't even know what the current Conservative Party stands for. You know, what what is what is Boris Johnson's ideology? What is Boris Johnson's vision for this country? What what does Boris Johnson want Britain to look like? This you could say the same thing about the Labour Party. You know, haven't actually announced. I think three policies have been announced by the Labour Party so far. Um, three concrete, tangible policies have been announced by the Labour Party so far. You could say exactly the same thing about the Labour Party, um, and we all know how how um, many factions there are within the Labour Party itself. We know how many factions there are within the Conservative Party 
itself. And this is why labels in general, political labels are so ridiculous because I could I I, I would say that I, I, I am I'm on the left of politics. Candace, I think I would say that you are, would say that you were on the left of, of the political spectrum. Brett, I would say that you were on the left of the political spectrum. But we could all sit here and find, go issue by issue and find stuff that we disagreed on and find stuff that we agreed on. Which is why, you know, saying that I'm left wing and you're left wing, so we must agree, is, is stupid. Because we're never going to sit and agree on, on everything. We're never going to put ourselves in the same political party. There's always going to be things that we, we don't like. Which is why, you know, that, those kinds of, using those kind of binaries are, are so ridiculous. And then, you, you know, it becomes tribal. It comes, it's the footballification of, of politics, isn't it? Where you go, red team, good, no matter what they do. Or blue team, good, no matter what they do. And you champion those, those teams. And you never change your mind and you fill yourself with an, in an echo chamber and it is toxic and it's poisonous. And, and that's what needs to change from not only a legis legislative point of view, but also for our wider kind of political participation and discourse, because mm. it's only going to create more problems. I think this actually makes me think of what Brett was just saying, is that um, one of the things that I find really interesting is meeting people, not just intersectional but they're from other political um, environments so like seeing how politics is done somewhere else sometimes gives you a whoo and it was good we don't have that but at the same time you acknowledge where um, our shortcomings are in that um, like a place like Rwanda I didn't realize how like forward in their representation of women on political platforms across all levels they had got compared to the UK that shines a light as the uh, epicenter for how to do politics. Um, one thing that I do realise that I also agree with you, Jack, is that when you go down to like, I don't know, as low as parish council, which not everybody understands what parish council can and can't do, but that low, it seems to become more... Um, Dependent-minded people, mm. rather than um, political party-focused, and that's where I shudder the idea of like loads of parties. Not that I wouldn't want what France has, but I shudder at it because um, if you ever been to a parish council meeting, it's very. This is my opinion. That's my opinion. I'm not saying it's not like that when you get all the way up to MP, but I acknowledge that my understanding of political government is built on these two main parties my understanding of how i should represent myself or how i should talk or what i should wear they're menial things but getting into politics uh, for some strange reason as a black woman like me you have very few women to pinpoint yourself mm. on and you go okay this is how it is to be in politics so that is one thing that i hope can come from more parties being yeah. in the in the forte is you can go okay i don't have to wear a suit and tie mm. like converses doesn't make me less um political it, you know um it's not going to make me look like a twat <laughs> if my hair's never done um uh, but this is these are the small caveats of the good things of having other yeah. representation yeah uh, it's such an important point and I, I look back at the 2015 election and uh, you know there's that classic photo of Cameron, Clegg and Miliband stood next to each other at that podium and they all look exactly the same. Yes, there are some differences in policies, but they all t all speak pretty similarly 
and you think yeah. what yeah. you know how how can we view this as being truly democratic you know you've got three white blokes stood there talking in the same way wearing the same color suit with just with different color ties on we don't have we don't have proper choice and even if you want to go and, and vote for a fourth or fifth party you're dissuaded from doing that because you go my vote won't mean anything anyway you know what's the point i, I want to I, I don't want the tories in so i'll vote labor or i don't want labor in so i'll vote for the tories when really i align myself with the women's equality party or i align myself with the greens or or you align yourself with a party that only exists in a local area in it just down the road from me there's a, a party that are running in the local elections called the swanscombe and green hive residents association they were set up by local residents um, to serve the interests of local residents and they're very successful um, and you might want to vote you might you know you might you might think I, I want to vote for them in the in the general election because I only care about you know issues in my local area but you're dissuaded from doing that because of the fact that you know if you live in a conservative area and you want the Tories out you're focused on voting for another party and I, I think you hit the nail on the head and hopefully more parties means more representation means more people from a diverse range of backgrounds getting involved in politics people have more role models it shows that it's it's becoming easier and easier to get into politics politics is becoming more accessible thanks to things like you know social media or, or, or being able to stand up and do speeches and upload them to youtube and and get your voices out there and build a platform the northern independence party have done this fantastically and whilst i'm still not entirely sure whether they're serious or whether they're a joke they've been able to build a massive platform over a really short period of time based around a host of issues, but predominantly the fact that Westminster doesn't care about um, people outside Westminster. You know, um, they are, they, they have been able to build a very, very influential platform based on, based around one issue and then tag on, you know, things about social justice and voter reform and all, all of this stuff onto that. And, and I hope that that's the way that we're going. Um, so I think there is light at the end of the tunnel in terms of us becoming more democratic. But I, you know, we could easily swing the other way, um, and and it can make people it, laws and legislation could come in that make it more difficult for people to get involved in politics and make it more difficult for people to participate. So um, we have to keep fighting. I think that's the the important point is that you you always have to be aware of how fragile democracy is and how fragile participation is, and constantly be you know talking about um, enriching it and making it easier for people to get involved. I know I'm not the one to come and ask questions, but the question that comes to my mind is, if with more parties and a different system, would that lead to a change in how the House of Commons actually works? Mm. Is that going to be part of like this push? Because I think one of the things people who listen to this will think, if they're not as politically savvy as others, is that we still know that we kind of wager on people being aligned to an extent on big things so that we can get it through as a policy, right? And we're watching that in America right now is that we needed enough of these Democrats to vote one way so that the horrors of what the Republicans were trying to bring in because they felt sad about losing the election wouldn't occur. But that puts a lot of weight on those representatives to vote against maybe how they feel. And we know that we currently use the whip as a way to control that. Would, would that be another advancement that we're going to have to see? And from your viewpoint, do you think that would be easy enough across all the different parties? 
Yeah. Go, <laughs> I mean, I, I would say that even if the whip system thing was removed completely now, that would that would uh, be more democratic because you'd have people mm. from Labour or from conserv- the Conservatives voting the way they want to vote or the way they think their constituents would want to vote rather than the way Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer wants to vote. Um, so that alone, I think, would, would create a more democratic process. But uh, yeah, I think that the, the, the House of Commons should change. I think that uh, I don't really necessarily... I think even the layout from a physical point of view, the layout of having two opposing benches doesn't really create much place or doesn't create a great environment for debate or discourse because it's just people shouting from each side at each other. Um, having like a semicircle or a circle or however else to, to make it seem more um, like an ensemble would be would be better. And I think that that would also allow for uh, more parties to, to be represented rather than these opposing bench style because the, the like when change uk had had mps for that short amount of time in uh, in parliament they were just shoved to the back of the labor benches you know it's, <laughs> and or the smp are shoved off to one side uh, currently still it's it's um i yeah I, I think it should change if if i think the important factor and i completely agree but i think the important factor for, for us to think about is how many how many advancements have there been over the last 300 years right 400 years 500 years in the world how far has the world come the political system hasn't changed you know mm-hmm. there's been slight tweaks here and there the now way that have, we make decisions yeah right the, the way that we make decisions the way that we pass legislation and we debate policy hasn't changed at all that is clearly ridiculous and just because we like tradition and just because we like a bit of, you know, ceremony and we like to dress up and it's cool when, you know, Blackrod goes and knocks on the door and opens Parliament, doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at ways to reform our Parliament, reform our voting system, make it more accessible to people to get involved, but also make debate easier, better, make discourse um, more positive, make it easier for people to collaborate. You know, you look at some of the Scandinavian systems where you have m- many more coalitions and there's more compromise in, in passing um, passing laws and legislation, but that legislation is almost always more reflective of the views of the people. Um, having a voting system which fairly reflects the way that people vote, that is what we need to work towards and it's time that we do it now. Should we still have an unelected second chamber? You know, the House of Lords is the House of Lords fit for purpose. The House of Lords does lots of good work. I'm not denying that. It's important that we have a second chamber. But is it democratic to have an unelected second chamber? I don't think it is. Um, it's it's not about hating this these systems. It's not about thinking that they're disgusting and disgraceful. It's about saying they've served their purpose and it's time that they're reformed and it's time that they're overhauled and there's ways of doing things that are far better than the way that we do them at the moment. So when we're having these discussions, more parties is great, but there needs to be a route for those parties to be able to, to create change and for, for people to be able to vote for them and for them to, to be put in power because there isn't that at the moment. So it's, it's about reforming the voting system. It's about reforming the Houses of Parliament. It's about reforming the House of Lords. Um, all of those things need to happen. It's, it's full-scale political reform. Um, and I, I think that, I, I mean, I don't know the polling numbers, but if I had to guess, I would say that, that political reform in this country would be overwhelmingly popular. Yeah, yeah, we know that because that is very much, even though me and this man have many things we don't like about 
each other probably uh, he doesn't know i exist but i do know he exists but um <laughs> myself and night rod would be probably one time that we would agree with yeah. something because he is one of those people who talks about this rhetoric a lot because he still has a slight sour spot on the fact that he did all of this work for uh, UKIP and they were unfairly treated by the current system. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm aware that we're short on time, so I'm going to move on to our current events topic for today. Current events! Uh, there was a an article in the BBC today that said that Boris Johnson is uh, set to announce plans this week uh, for radical new climate change commitments. Uh, which will set the UK on course to cut carbon emissions by 80% by 2035, uh, which is uh, obviously earlier than his 2050 target of reaching net zero. Um, Labour have said, obviously, that they've come out in sort of slightly um, sceptical, saying that uh, the rhetoric has to match reality. You know, they're saying that the government needs to show greater ambition and that they need to act on these it's all well and good to say these things but if there is no action um i think i saw in the bbc article that these some of the things suggested are stuff like better insulated homes more expensive flights for frequent flyers people will be encouraged to drive less or drive electric cars um my question is is labor right is this just another pledge without action because we've seen the government scrap things like the green homes grant um recently and putting millions of pounds into stuff like the, the road, into road infrastructure, or billions of pounds even, um, is Labour right to to uh, be sceptical? I, I, I think so. I think we're all right to be sceptical, and it doesn't matter who's in government. I think if the Labour Party were in government, I would still be sceptical skept- as to whether they'd be able to achieve the targets that were being set. Because fundamentally... Pledges are amazing and they're great and they're important. We need targets. We need to be able to meet targets. We need to, you know, increasing road infrastructure is great. Encouraging people to drive electric cars is great. Encouraging people to get solar panels on their roofs is great. They aren't the things that are going to help us to reach net zero by 2050 or achieve a target of being, you know, 75% um, carbon neutral by 2035. That That is 14 years away. The amount that society has to change in that time to be able to meet those targets is gargantuan. I really think that we are underestimating the scale of change that needs to occur. We are talking about a a new industrial revolution, a green industrial revolution, the amount of money that needs to go into new infrastructure, to changing the grid, to, to building new technologies and to researching new technologies is vast. And it must happen. It needs to happen. And if I was in the Conservative Party or I was advising the Conservative Party, what I would say was stop releasing press statements and put your money where your mouth is. Start investing in new green technologies. Start giving subsidy, more, more increased subsidies to private companies that are investing in, in this area and that are researching in this area and start to release policy that's actually going to do something. That's what I would say, because all this will do is frustrate people if those targets aren't met. Net Zero 2050, whilst not optimistic enough in my opinion, um, is, is a decent target, but we're not on course to achieve that at the moment. We're not on course. Even now. So things need to tra- change drastically, and that's what I'd say. You know, Just reserve judgment, judge 
governments by the policies that they enact and not by what they say um and a lot a lot more needs to be done if we're, we're going to achieve that and i hope it is you know i hope it is i think for myself when i hear things like this it's not even the the three points you pointed out it's what goes through my head when i think about like a lot of what the women's equality party stands for um we've been shouting about this for the all of our existence and probably many of our members before we existed when we were in other parties is is simple reforms like actually investing in care care is a green employment system if you really thought about how much they've invested in old uh, iron steel coal industries that need to become archaic but they won't invest in industries that don't flourish on these old systems and could uh, you know enhance the way we change about thinking about how we deal with just those menial things um if we invested in care homes and things like that we would have thought about how we could make these spaces more green we would have because it would part of re um changing the landscape right you'd be thinking about buses that could get to these places. You'd be thinking about how caregivers have to move around town. You'd be thinking about how mothers and babies have to get on buses and how many buses are needed so that they can all get to work and in an eco-friendly system. We're not doing that bit of the work. We're doing the bit that's easy. Um, to an extent, the privileged few who fly between here and I'm here in uh, England to Scotland on a regular basis. Let's just tax them, make it harder for them to do that regularly, right? That that's not the big asks that I'm thinking of when I hear uh, legislations like this. I'm thinking about um, the everyday simple policies that will get us there a lot quicker if we enacted them immediate of today. And I agree with Jack. Yeah, there is this big um, infrastructure change, but there's Easy wins already that could have been taken up and we keep um, receiving this kind of yin-yang situation. Like you said, there was the green homes, didn't want that, you give us this. You kind of go, but we gave you something that would have helped you with this. So we could have both, okay? We're not going to get both, but we just thought the first one would have been great. That's what runs through my mind when yeah. I hear things like this. Ta taxing, you know, ha having, implementing a carbon tax is great, but it doesn't stop the need for people to, to travel. So, uh, you know, come back to the infrastructure. If, pe if, you, if you price people out of being able to fly to Scotland, doesn't mean that people aren't going to want to go or need to go to Scotland. So you need to provide people an alternative. If people then, if there isn't, if there aren't the train links from places that people need to go to, they're going to drive. And that doesn't help the situation either. You know, that makes it, that makes it worse. We've spoken about this before on the podcast. Electric cars are a great innovation step, but they're not the future um, of, of green motoring technology. So I, I agree that there are lots of areas that, that need to be decarbonized, and that's a, an intense societal change. But if the, the investment isn't put into, technolog into technological research and academic research and infrastructure research, we won't be able to achieve those changes. Because we won't be able to decarbonize those areas and those industries if the technology isn't there, and that's the problem. Um, and, and that's it. We haven't even touched on, you know, these humongous companies that are continuing to, to research how to how to destroy the planet. And until you tackle them, and until you move that money into green research or green investment, 
you won't you won't solve the problem. Yeah, I mean, if a carbon tax was introduced on these companies, that would surely drive them to find cheaper ways of of uh, producing the whatever it is they Absolutely. produce, whether it's vehicles or whatever. Um, yep. I was just uh, bringing up in terms of um, uh, in terms of talking about uh, budget and how much money would need to go into uh, achieving these these goals by twenty thirty five or twenty fifty. Um, the CCC, the Climate Change Committee, said that one percent of GDP would be needed per year for thirty years to shift from fossil fuels, um, which doesn't seem like that much. I mean, one percent to to you know. Uh, save the planet doesn't seem like a, a big deal, um, but that's that's to achieve net zero by twenty fifty. It's just a shift from fossil fuels. So yeah, I'm assuming. Yeah, but that, then... but the C, the CTC are the, the the committee that released the net zero twenty fifty target. So that's not to achieve seventy five percent decarbonisation by twenty thirty five. Sure, that's to achieve the net zero target, which you know it's not a lot of money, but it's a vast amounts more than we're invested at the moment. Sure, they also said that. Um, low carbon investment should reach 50 billion pounds a year again i assume to to reach net zero uh if so we're supposed to be hearing what these um uh this announcements sorry what these announcements are uh later this week from boris what would both of you like to see at the top of the list of his announcements for me it'd be a carbon tax that'd be the number one by carbon tax do you mean on corporations or generally or on the greater public because like, i'm not no, t- uh, gone uh yeah i i think there needs to be uh, uh fundamentally it's on corporations and that's the most important aspect but then we need to start looking at the causes of pollution from an individual perspective and what minor changes we can we can make because you know it's who 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 are the who are the individuals who are um consistently flying from you know Gatwick to Scotland to Gatwick to Edinburgh or whatever they're not you know we're not talking about people that are poor individuals or people who are struggling to make ends meet you need to be earning a good amount of money to be able to um, afford that so uh, a carbon tax I think fundamentally should encompass those things as well um, but particularly on on businesses on larger businesses on corporations that's that's the main thing yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I also, alongside carbon tax, I would want to be seeing that there's some a different infrastructure, but there's some infrastructure into how we educate that growing demographic still in school, how we change that ideology. Because at the moment, I live in a rural area. It is very much part and parcel of the indoctrination. I'm not saying that this is the right word to use but it is it's an unsaid truth out here that you just get a car when you're 16 it's just like that mm. every single child there's pumping out new car drivers because we live in a, such a rural area where um uh transport isn't the first form of choice like getting on a bus or coach or a train it's to self trans get yourself around and um i think we need to have that urge of moving the unsaid norms in society through the education system making it um interesting making it normality and making it as much our work as people who've already gone through the education system but as much their ethos that they're taking on board when they're adults and um 
maybe it seems like a small thing to invest in, but it should be part of the main five point plan if it is one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what he uh, what he does announce later this week. Um, but by the time this podcast goes out, it might have already been announced. So keep an eye out for it. <laughs> um, let's move on to quick five questions. Um, quickly rattle through them. My first question, uh, Candice, I apologize if you're not really uh, into football because it's a football question. <laughs> uh, it's should the six teams who joined the European Super Super League be kicked from the Premier League? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, they should be. I, I think so too. <laughs> That's easy. Uh, my next question is, should the UK be more strict about which countries it adds to its no-go list? This is, uh, I got the inspiration for, uh, for this question from uh, the government recently adding India to the to the no-go list, despite their wave being, or they've been having increasing cases for quite a long time now. So, um, yeah, it's the new variant predominantly, though, isn't it? That's the reason. But I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yes, I think they should. Yeah, be far stricter. Yeah. Um, I'm indifferent. Okay. Um, I've seen some of the countries that are already on the list, and I don't want to seem like I'm just shouting about uh, the race card. But I was really horrified to see countries where they know don't have the same um, medical systems to deal with if there was an increase in people getting. Um, COVID again um, were allowing for trans, you know, like travel to these countries again. Um, I just feel like the, the the list was put on where people would enjoy themselves or where they ha might have links with those countries, and rather than also just looking at what those countries might need right now, which is a further pause on British travel because we did do one, we were one of the worst countries. And so, you know, much of the Caribbean happened to be on that list. And that did kind of scare me because I what, come from Caribbean countries that don't have the same medical systems and probably yeah. wouldn't be able to deal with a rise in um, cases. Or what's the word? Cases. So they, they were on the, like, the green lighted list, those countries? Yeah, were. they were going to be added. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, those, yeah, those those countries. If they if they want to ban British um, citizens from entering their country, they they have the power to do that, right? So, and they should be well within their rights to be able to to be able to do I, that. I think. That I the, think it's. The... I think it's back to that word of power of like how someone has an influence over other people, and the UK does kind of sit itself in a state of I have power and authority to say certain things. That's why like most recently we had like the race report where they said we're like a leading figures on this and we can tell other people how to do it and it's a bit like sometimes you need to use your power good as well and say to the people who'd like to travel actually it's, it's gonna be a really short small list of places you can go because we need to see dramatic dramatic change in the UK before we let you all out across the world to travel wherever you like and I thought that that list should have been a lot smaller that's just my opinion is this are you talking about the green list or the one with the yeah right. yeah yeah okay. just thought it should be smaller yeah. yeah fair enough um my next question is should the sale of tobacco be banned no indifferent <laughs> this is again... the, the, the worst thing you can ever do with illicit sub substances is ban them you have to legalize and you have to regulate it's the best way to stop those 
prohibition doesn't work. It doesn't work for any substance. It, doesn't, it didn't work for alcohol. It hasn't worked for any class of, of drugs. Um, the worst thing you could possibly do is push tobacco into the black market. You're going to increase the amount of problems. You need to educate people. You need to regulate as much as you possibly can. You need to stop advertising. I'm for, I'm for all of that. But banning the substance is a, is a ridiculous idea, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I agree. Uh, the I think, was it New Zealand, I think, suggested that they were going to do they were going to do that for people under a certain age. They were going to ban them from buying it under like 36 or something. I think the age was crazy. Like mid 30s. Crazy. Um, yeah. Seems like a strange tactic, yeah. but um, yeah. to me anyway. Uh, next question, slightly less serious. If you were to buy a 99 ice cream, would you, <laughs> would you get a flake with it or not? Absolutely. Yeah. Why, why, why would I not get a flake? Yeah. Uh, Who, is there like an anti flake brigade? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. There's shortage of flakes. <laughs> Brexit. Good. It'd be Brexit's fault. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand either. It's the best bit. It's the yeah, best bit. It's, it's the ice cream. not a ninety-nine without the flake. No, it's not. It shouldn't we'll even be an option, really. No, it shouldn't be. No. <laughs> yeah, we'll run a poll and see if anybody says uh, that they yeah. would not pick a flake. <laughs> um, my final animal is final animal. I was reading the question there. It's <laughs> <laughs> reading the question. My final question is: What animal? Doesn't currently fly, but would be the most terrifying if it did. Oh, like a tiger or a lion? Can you imagine oh. flying lion? <laughs> flying. That's what I was thinking. Like big cats. But yeah. they're pretty lazy, though, aren't they? Big cats. I feel like they'd get tired after a while, and I don't know. Got <laughs> those claws in the sky. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, that'd be. I'd love that. <laughs> <laughs> You'd love that. Yeah, that'd be wicked. Can you what imagine about... just sat at your window and a lion flies past? <laughs> what about flying rats or something? Oh, I mean, pigeons that's just pigeons. flying rats. Yeah, pigeons. <laughs> I feel like rats get around them ain't enough. Yeah, you know? that's true. Yeah, but if Jump I... Did you say the worst? Or the if most you could choose terrifying. an animal? No, no, oh, no. What the most what terrifying? Would be the most terrifying, Brett? Yeah. Terrifying, yeah. It would be a flying lions around. <laughs> if there were lions flying around the world, that'd be the most terrifying, wouldn't it? I guess, but then what about like flying scorpions or, or I don't more know. More terrifying. Just can't more imagine terrifying a than a flying lion. Wings. <laughs> well, no, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the question is whether you know if they did, not if you could necessarily imagine it, because I think some of those, like, can you imagine an elephant with wings? That'd be great. Or a crocodile yeah. with wings. Yeah. Imagine a crocodile with of wings. Dumbo. Like, oh, right. <laughs> Like, kind of fly. Yeah, that's like, true. It'd just be like some extra. But yeah, that wouldn't be terrifying. That'd be no. awesome. <clears throat> I guess not. I don't know. Obviously, you'd want to make sure they land accurately. Like, really <laughs> yeah. is the elephant about to land? Yeah. Yeah. Get out of the way. <laughs> what if tarantulas could fly? If you could just see a tarantula flying oh, by your uh... window. <laughs> no, it's awful. You're gonna give me nightmares now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I just had a sudden thought to the Wizard of Oz and the Flying Monkeys. They used to petrify me as a kid. I was I would cry whenever that scene came on. Really? Yeah. Uh, a bit random, but <laughs> there we go. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Candice. <laughs> on that note, Candice, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us and uh, coming to talk to us. All right. Is there anything you wanted to maybe... Uh, promote or or uh, can anybody find you anywhere if they wanted to to learn more about you <laughs> do try and engage with the politics 
this year. It's just real. It's really juicy one, right? In the time of history, no, let's let's put it out there. In the time of history, there's a lot going around going on around the world, and it's a really good time to engage with it sure. and see what is the outcome. If we get a new mayor, this is the time to see if like a sanctuary city would be approved, or if we will see certain agendas become political priority. Is climate change? quite yet a political priority don't know but if it became definitely a priority like covid did we would see a surge in the change that we need to see well said yeah very well said thank you everybody for listening uh make sure to look out for our podcast again next week uh and we'll see you then like and subscribe brett Shit. every time every time i forget <laughs> and check out our other videos as well while you're at it we'll see you next week